All right, let's take out our Bibles together. We're going to be going to Ephesians chapter 2 today. New Testament book of Ephesians. We'll cover the first 10 chapters in, or the first 10 verses, rather, in chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Give you just a minute to get there. Now, in the last few decades, we as a people have become infatuated with ourselves. We are perhaps the most self-centered culture in the history of the world. The ultimate value in today's culture is that everyone should be able to express themselves in whichever way they wish. And the ultimate sin in today's culture is offending someone's sense of self-worth. Virtues like sacrifice, honor, chivalry, temperance, and hard work have been replaced with the virtues of self-care, self-help, self-esteem, self-realization, and self-love. There is even an entire industry making products and technologies so that we can take pictures and videos, not of the world around us, but of ourselves. And this infatuation with ourselves has begun to seep into the church. It is no surprise. For decades, our children have been indoctrinated and discipled by the world and the culture much more than they have been by God's word. And so it is no wonder then that over time the church begins to reflect the culture instead of the other way around. You can see this reflected in the worship songs that we write. Now, I must say, there are some very good worship songs being put out today by some very God-centered writers and musicians and artists. But if you pay attention, the lyrics of the songs written by those of my generation as a whole often have us singing about ourselves much more than God. And his glory. It sounds as if we are trying to work ourselves up into an excitement that is based on little more than the idea that God has told us that we are special, we are important, we are strong, and we are the whole point of it all. What the church desperately needs today is to take our eyes off of ourselves and to behold the glory of God. We need a God-centered self-forgetfulness. And thankfully, the solution is very simple. Go to God's word. For in God's word, you will not find a religion centered on us and our importance. You will find the glory of God most fully displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will not find any kind of religion That says we are the center of it all. We are the reason for it all. No, it is God and his glory and his love and his giving of himself that is the center and the reason for it all. Today we see how salvation itself is not even about us and what we do. Salvation itself is about God and what he has done. Let me show you from our text. Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, this is God's word through the Apostle Paul. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now I want to show you a few ways from our passage today that Paul shows us salvation is not about us and what we do. Salvation is about God and what he has done. Now first of all, we look at what he says in verses 1 through 3. Ironically, Paul does spend a little time focusing on us here in the passage, but he uses it to tell us we're dead apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, you are dead. That's what verses 1 through 3 are showing us. Life outside of Christ is a living, walking death. Yesterday, we took some of the kids over to Ralphie's Fun Center over in Glasgow. You ever been to this place? Just a place with all kinds of games and stuff to do for kids. Well, there's this video game over there, right in the middle of all the video games, where you shoot zombies. Okay? You're just supposed to kill zombies. That's the whole game. And these zombies are coming at you, and they're, they're growling and drooling, and they've got bloody heads, and they've got messed up clothes, and their skin's all gray, and they're you know, wobbling as they walk. But they're like walking dead people, right? They're, they're dead, and they're walking around. Without Christ, we are like that. For all intents and purposes, without Christ, we are dead. But we're walking around in that death. We're living in that death. We're living for things that only bring death. We're storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of judgment. Apart from Christ, we are dead. That's what Paul talks about here in verses 1 through 3. And he points out actually four things that it means that we're dead apart from Christ. There's four ways that we act Or four things that that characterize those who are dead apart from Christ. Look at verse 2. In verse 2 he says, apart from Christ, we follow the course of this world. You see that? You follow the course of the world without Christ. It's like a a tiny leaf floating in a stream. And it it just goes along with wherever the, the current goes. That's us without Christ. Ephesians 4 talks about how there are some people who are blown here and there by every wind of doctrine and teaching. Without Christ, we just follow along with the course of this world. Whatever's trendy, whatever's in, that's just what you go along with. There's no anchor. There's no place to stand. There's no conviction. It's just whatever is in at the time. The values of the world are changing all the time. The goalposts are always moving. You can never be progressive enough. You can never be 
fill in the blank enough. It's always a moving target. The values of our modern culture are are radically different than they were when I was a kid. that, That has been a very short time when you consider the scope of history. But without Christ, you just move along with whatever that is. You you don't stand for something. You just go along with anything. Without Christ, we follow the course of this world. But there also in verse 2, look how he says, Without Christ, we follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is Satan himself. Without Christ, you're following Satan himself. Jesus said in Matthew 12.30, Whoever is not with me is against me. In other words, there's no middle ground here. There is no middle ground. You're either with Christ and with God, or you have pledged allegiance, even if unwittingly, you have pledged allegiance to the kingdom that stands against him. There might be people who say, I'm not standing with Satan. I've never decided to become a Satanist. I'm just living for myself. But that's exactly what Satan wants. It's exactly where Satan wants you. Living for yourself with no regard for God means you have unwittingly enlisted to serve on the side of this prince of the power of the air who stands against God and against Christ and works in the sons of disobedience in this world. A lack of committing to Christ, a refusal to commit to Christ, is a commitment to the other side. There's no middle ground here. Without Christ, we follow Satan himself. Then in verse 3, look what he says in verse 3. In verse 3 he says, We live for the passions of our flesh, and we carry out the desires of our bodies and our minds. Without Christ, that's what we're living for. That's what drives us. Without Christ, we are being driven by our own natural, sinful desires. Apart from Christ, we wake up thinking, how am I going to please myself today? And the Bible calls this slavery. Slavery. We are enslaved to our passions and sins apart from Christ. And the Bible tells us we must be set free from this. And then finally, the final remark he makes about us being dead apart from Christ comes at the end of verse 3. We are by nature children of wrath. By nature. In other words, by default. By default. You don't have to do anything to become someone who is under the wrath of God except live long enough to where you reach what we call the age of accountability. That's all you got to do. And if you do nothing else, if you just passively live, then you are under the condemnation of God. Under the wrath of God. It's the default setting for all of mankind once you get beyond the initial grace he gives to young people who are not accountable because they do not know. In John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. And we always remember this conversation because of that famous verse, John 3.16. But right after John 3.16, Jesus comes to Nicodemus and says in John 3.18, and he's speaking of himself, Jesus is, in the third person here. John 3.18, he says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son 
of God. Jesus tells Nicodemus, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because they're already there. That's where they already are by default. Jesus didn't come here to condemn the world. They're already under condemnation. He came to save it from the condemnation. It's already in. Condemned already by default. Apart from Christ, we are by nature, Paul says, children of wrath. And so all this to say, Paul spends those first three verses telling us, without Christ, we're dead. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. We need a resurrection. We need life that we cannot give to ourselves. But verse 4, look at your text. Verse 4 is the turn. But God. But God. Not only is this a turn from bad news to good news, it's a turn from ourselves and what we have done to God and what he has done. Look at verse 4. He says, but God being rich in mercy. Being rich in mercy. Before we begin to talk about what God has done, we're talking about who God is. Because what he does comes from his very self, his very nature, his very character. Who is he? He's rich in mercy. In his really good book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland notes that nowhere else in the Bible is God called rich in anything. Only here and only in mercy. Now that's telling, right? Nowhere else in the Bible does it say God is rich in something. The only place is here, and what it says he's rich in is mercy. This is our God, rich in mercy, overflowing in mercy. Think about someone who's filthy rich. They have more than they know what to do with, right? They have more money than they can figure out how to use. They spend it on frivolous things because it's just so plentiful. They can do anything with their money. God is rich like that in mercy, in mercy. When God proclaimed his glory to Moses on Mount Sinai in that foundational passage in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, He said to Moses, as he passed by, he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. That's how God described himself. A God merciful and gracious. This is fundamental to who he is. And our salvation flows from that. He is rich in mercy. But that's not the only thing Paul says about him. Verse 4, what else does he say? Because of the great love... With which he loved us. We are saved because God loved us. We are saved because God loves us. You, if you are saved today, you are saved because God loves you. He loves me. God is love, 1 John 4 8. But do not let this make you think that you are so special and important that God would love you. No, the focus here is not there. The focus is on God's love, not our loveliness. Do you understand that? The focus here in this passage is not on our loveliness. It's about his great love. Romans 5.8 tells us, But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. A couple verses later there in Romans 5, Paul will say we were enemies of God and he sent his son for us. He punished his son for his own enemies because he loves them. He loves us. And so Paul sets this whole thing up in verse 4 by saying this is who God is. But now what did he do? What did he do? Salvation is not about us and what we have done. Salvation is about what God has done. What did he do? Verse 5, he made us alive in Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. And you go on to verse 6, in a similar way he says, he raised us up with him. When you come to Christ, you go from being dead, like we talked about before, to being alive. It's a resurrection. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Jesus says in John 5, 24, when you come to Christ, you cross over from death to life. Without Christ, like we said, this life is a living death. We're walking around in our own deadness, so to speak. But Jesus gives life. He said, I've come that they may have life And have it to the full. Have it in abundance. Jesus makes us alive. He raises us from the grave. But notice also there in verse 6. What else does it say? He seated us. God seated us with Christ. With him in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. Now this is astounding. This is astounding. Why? It's because of what we saw last week. Do you remember last week? Chapter 1, verse 20. Look at that with me. Chapter 1, verse 20. God's talking about this, or Paul's talking about this this immense power of God that he worked in Christ. Verse 20, chapter 1. When he raised Christ from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now look down at verse 6. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's an intentional parallel here. God first focuses on how he has raised Christ and he seated Christ with him in the heavenly places. And now he tells us he's raised us and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. What? This is one of the things in the Bible. And this happens all the time. If you read your Bible and you pay attention, this is one of the things in the Bible that if you told me it was there and I didn't know it was there, I'd say, no, that's, that's too much. That's too good to be true. That's almost, that's almost wrong. I, we don't deserve that place of prominence, and yet it's there. Last week we said when God seated Jesus at his right hand, it was the place of prominence and authority. The place of honor. And here in verse 6 it tells us that we have been seated with Christ In the heavenly places. Now it is astounding, but what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, multiple times in the New Testament we read that in eternity we will reign with Christ. In eternity we will reign with Christ. If you're in Christ and you die as a Christian, you die faithful to Jesus, you'll reign with Christ. If you share in his sufferings now, you will reign with him then. But notice here in our text, it implies. We are already seated with Christ. It's past tense. He seated us with him in the heavenly places. And so there is some sense in which we are already reigning with Christ now. 
This means we are sharing in Jesus' victory over the spiritual forces of evil. Not fully, but partially now. It has begun. That's one of the beauties of Christianity, right? Eternal life doesn't just happen far away from now. Then it has already begun for those of us who have been raised with Christ. Jesus came, died, resurrected, and inaugurated God's kingdom. God's kingdom is already here. It's not fully realized yet. It's not been fully consummated, and he's not fully reigning like he will in the future, but it's already started. It's already started here on earth, and it's already started right here in the hearts of those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ. We share in Jesus' victory. We are protected from those forces in Christ. Jesus is seated in the heavenly places above all the rulers and authorities and powers and dominions, above all spiritual forces of evil we talked about last week. And if we're seated with him, we are protected from those forces in Christ. And it means we can find victory over the temptations and the deceptions of Satan and the forces of darkness here in this earth. The prince of the power of the air has power, yes, But his power can only go so far. And those who are under the protective blood of Jesus Christ are not affected by his power as they otherwise would be. Can we be tempted? Yes. Can we be deceived? Yes. But we also have a power within us that is greater than any power in this world. And so we see that God, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, He has raised us. He has made us alive. He has seated us with Christ. But notice verse 7. Verse 7 tells us the purpose of it all. Why did it happen? Now, in this text, if you've hung around church for a little bit, if you've read your Bible a little bit, what always gets the publicity is verses 8 and 9. 8 and 9 always gets the, the big publicity, right? Those are the ones we memorize. Anytime we want to talk about being saved by grace and not by works, we go to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. A bunch of people memorize this in Bible school growing up. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, right? And that's extraordinary and important. It's memorized rightfully so. But I have always, always, always drawn more strength from verses 4 through 7 Because of what it says in verse 7 especially. The whole point of all of this is so that in the coming ages, he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is the purpose of God saving us by grace? What is the purpose of him making us alive in Christ? What is the purpose of him seating us with Christ in the heavenly places? This says God is so giving, he's so gracious, he is so loving that he saves us just so that he can lavish his immeasurable kindness and grace on us for all eternity. That's the whole point. That's what he wants to do. He's got so much of it, he's ready to lavish it on us for all eternity. That's the whole reason he's doing what he's doing. He wants us with him, and he wants to just overwhelm us with his kindness and his grace. And it says it's immeasurable. What does it mean? 
That God will be so kind and gracious to us that we won't be able to measure it. What does that mean? Speculate with me. What does that mean? I mean, I really can't tell you because it's immeasurable. It's beyond our imagination. It's beyond our comprehension. But what's beautiful about that is you just stretch your imagination out there to its farthest. Go as far as you can. And it's way more than that. Speculate. Spend time dreaming about all the ways that God will be kind to you in heaven. What I don't mean is this. Don't dream about God's kindness to you by your own standards, right? A lot of people have these ideas of heaven that are not biblical because they're, they're just dreaming them up out of their own ideas of what is perfect, right? Everybody's got a different idea of what should be perfect. There's been all kinds of wacky ideas over the history of the, of the church on what might happen in heaven because people didn't get biblical, right? You need to have a biblically informed imagination here. But once your imagination is biblically informed, then let it go. Let it run wild and think about all the ways that God will pour his kindness over us and overwhelm us with kindness in eternity. And it's going to be much more than you can ever even imagine. You guys ever seen the Make-A-Wish Foundation stuff online or on TV? There's there's a, a child who has a terminal illness. And they, everybody knows this kid's not going to be able to live life like they should be able to. They're not going to be able to experience so many things. They're going to die so early. So let's make one of their dreams come true. And the kids have all these crazy outlandish dreams. And the Make-A-Wish Foundation just, just throws the doors open. No expense is spared. We're going to make your dream come true. We're going to pull out all the stops, right? They're going to pull out all the stops to make this kid's dream come true. Eternity with God is going to be that times 10,000 and more. He's just going to overwhelm us with his kindness and his grace. What will it be like? I can't imagine, because my imagination can't get there, and none of ours can, but let's try and let's live our lives in light of that, right? This whole passage is kind of culminated in verse 10, where it says, Christ Je- we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One of the ways that you go out and do good works is you realize I've been saved by grace and there is an immeasurable inheritance waiting for me in heaven for all eternity. So I'm just going to go serve and serve and serve and serve and give and give until I keel over and I'm spent and I'm done and I don't have anything left. Blah. Right? Because I've got heaven waiting. For me, So I can just give it all now. We can give it all now for the good of others to try to get them in on this with us, which is what we're going to talk about next. Verses 8 and 9, we have been saved by grace. We've been saved by grace. What does this mean? Well, it means you didn't save yourself. None of us have saved ourselves. You are not saved by your works. You are not saved by your obedience. You are not saved by your track record. The whole focus here is on what God did, not what you did. What God did to save us. 
It is by grace. You do not deserve it. None of us deserve to be saved. No matter how good you were when you were growing up, no matter if you're, you're a, a rule keeper and you're, you're really disciplined at reading your Bible and making sure you live the most righteous life possible, none of us have been saved by ourselves and our own works and our own merit. None of us deserve it. It's the gift of God, not by works. And it says, so that no one can boast. No one can boast. None of us. None of us are better than anyone else. None of us are more deserving of salvation than anyone else. None of us are closer to Jesus inherently than anyone else. We are not saying to the world, hey, hey, everybody out there, we're good people and you're the bad people. If you shape up, you can come in here and be one of us. That is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel is we've all been there. Every single person who knows Jesus, it's just by his grace. I don't deserve this at all. The way that we should share the gospel is to tell people, I can't believe that he would save somebody like me. You want in on that? Right? It is astounding that he would save me because I know the darkness in the depths of my heart. I don't know how bad you are, but you can't be any worse than me, right? And he would save me. You want in on this? Because it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how many times you have sinned or what your sins were or how bad, according to the world, they are. He can save you from all of it. He saves. Jesus' blood is powerful enough to save, to cleanse us from any and all sin. And so we can't boast. It's not by our merit. It's not by our works. It's by his grace. We can't boast before others and we certainly cannot boast before God because none of us earned it. None of us earned it. We cannot force God's hand as if he owed us salvation. You read through the Bible, that idea is laughable. It is all by his grace from first to last, we would not be saved had he not reached out to us. We would not be able to be saved had he not given us the revelation of himself and the gospel of his son Jesus. We would not be able to be saved if he did not send his son to this world and punish him on the cross and open up the way of salvation and give his truth to the apostles and hand it down to us. And we would not be saved had it not been for someone coming to us and telling us about this good news and helping us to understand it. And it's all of grace. We don't deserve it. None of it. I did not save myself. God saved me. And he can save you too. Ours is the responsibility to receive it by faith. Did you see that in verse 8? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Receive it by faith and it can be yours. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Submit to being baptized into his name. And all of this can be yours as well. It's the grace of God. It's often been said there is nothing free in this world except for the grace of God. And it is free, but let me tell you, it was costly. It was Jesus on the cross. It was the Father punishing his beloved Son on that cross so that you could receive it for free 
by faith. Will you do so? We're going to spend some time praying now. Just a few moments for all of us to go to God and to respond to him because of what he has said to us and what he has laid on our hearts through his word. And after each one of us spends some time in silent prayer responding to God, then we'll come back together. We'll have a time of invitation where anyone who needs to respond publicly to God's word can do so. But before we do that, let's pray and respond to God, each one of us individually, privately in silence.